Chapter Ten of the Legends and Myths of Hawaii. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Legends and Myths of Hawaii by King David Kalakaua. Chapter Ten The Iron Knife. Characters Kalaunu Io Hua. King of Hawaii, Kamaluo Hua, King of Maui, Hua Poulei, Ali Nui of Oahu, Kaho Kuo Hua, King of Molokai, Kukona, King of Kauai, Kahika, Queen of Hawaii, Kuaiwa, Son of the King of Hawaii, Kapapa, Daughter of the King of Hawaii waahia a renowned prophetess kualu adopted son of waahia wakalana an influential chief of maui kaluiki a manu hakoa and hika male shipwrecked foreigners neleike and malaya female shipwrecked foreigners Mano Kalanipo, son of the king of Kauai. The Iron Knife, a legend of the first war for the conquest of the group. Part 1. Two or three attempts to consolidate under one general government the several islands of the Hawaiian group were made by ambitious and warlike chiefs, previous to the final accomplishment of the project, at the close of the last century, by Kamehameha I. But all these early schemes of conquest and aggrandizement proved unsuccessful, and were especially unfortunate in affording excuses for retaliatory raids and invasions, sometimes extending, with more or less persistency and bitterness, to generations after. The most disastrous of these ambitious ventures was the first, and connected with it were a number of strange and dramatic incidents, giving to the story of the enterprise something more than a historic interest. It occurred in about A.D. 1260, and the bold warrior who attempted it was Kalaunuiohua, king of the island of Hawaii. He was the grandson of Kalapana, who reconquered the kingdom from Kamaioli, the usurper, as related in the story of the royal hunchback. At that time, Kamaluohua, the seventh in descent from Paumakua, was the moi of maui or rather of the western and greater part of the island huapolelei the eighth in line from mawiki was the the alii nui of oahu his possessions embracing the districts of iwa wainai and waialua while the kulau and kona divisions were ruled respectively by mokualoe and kahuoi the moi of molokai was kaho kuohua the fourth in descent in the old nanaula line from kiolo iwa the brother of kaupipi the abductor of hina and desperate defender of the fortress of haupu as told in the legend of hina the hawaiian helen kukona was the sovereign of kuwai he was the great-grandson of ahukini a la one of the three sons of the three wives of la mai kahiki 
as mentioned in the story of the triple marriage of La Mai Kahiki. The contemporary rulers of the several islands are thus referred to for the reason that they all appear as prominent actors in the several legends from which have been gathered the historic features of the story about to be related, and also for the purpose of keeping partially in view the conspicuous and succeeding representatives of the sovereign families of the group. Kalaunu Iohua, or, as he will be called hereafter, Kalaunui, inherited something of the military spirit of his warlike grandfather, and is referred to by tradition as an ambitious and aggressive sovereign, courageous in enterprise, but lacking in judgment and discretion. This estimate of his character is abundantly sustained by the record of his acts. Waipio had been made the focus of sovereign authority by Kahaimoilia, the royal father of Kalaunui, and continued to be the most attractive and consequential point in the kingdom. The royal grounds and edifices had been enlarged and improved from time to time, until barbaric taste and skill seemed to be able to add nothing more to their grandeur or beauty. Not far from the royal mansion was the great Hayao of Paka'alani, partially built by Kalapana and completed by his successor. Its taboos were the most sacred on Hawaii, and a descendant of Pau officiated there as high priest. It was connected with the palace enclosure by a sacred stone pavement, which it was death for any but royal and privileged feet to touch, and on its walls were over a hundred gods. Kalaunui was proud of his ancestry, which carried back his lineage both to Pili and Maweki, and united in his veins the foremost blood of the pioneers of the 5th and 11th centuries. He had two children, a son named Kuaiwa, and a daughter, Kapapa, whose full name was Kapapa Limulimu. At the time of which we are writing, she was fifteen, and her brother was three or four years older. Both had been carefully reared. The son had been instructed in all the manly accomplishments of his time, and from her infancy the daughter had been guarded with the most jealous watchfulness. She had grown almost to womanhood without betrothal, for the reason that a husband suited to her rank and personally deserving of her beauty could with difficulty be found in the kingdom. Among the number of the king's retainers of various grades of rank, beginning with the Wohi, or chief counsellor of royal blood next to the throne, and ending with the Kahu Ali and Puku, or personal and other attendants at the palace, was the young chief Kualu. He was large, muscular and handsome with a bearing indicative of good blood and through his courage and capacity at arms had been raised to the military position of pukawa or captain and placed in charge of the palace guard an office which gave him if he did not before possess it the privilege of an ayalo or the right to eat food in the presence of the king kualu was a chief without possessions his grandfather, a chief of the old line of Nanaula, had been killed in the battle which restored Kalapana to the throne of his fathers, and on the sudden death of his father twenty years before, he had been adopted by Waahia, a kaula, or prophetess, renowned in tradition for her foresight and influence. He was recognized by the Aha Ali, or College of Chiefs of established lineage, as of noble blood, 
but belonged to that class of chiefs who lacking the influence of family and estates were compelled to rely upon their own efforts for advancement although it is claimed that waahia was of chiefly lineage nothing is positively known even of her parents she first appeared in waipio more than a generation before and through an almost undeviating verification of her prophecies in time became noted and feared by the people not only as a favoured devotee of uli the god of the sorcerers but as a medium through whom the unipihili or spirits of the dead communicated she lived alone in a hut in a retired part of the valley of waipio and it is said that a large pueo or owl which with the white alei was sacred and sometimes worshipped came nightly and perched upon the roof of her lonely habitation of course a kaula of her sanctity wanted for nothing the people were only too happy to leave at her door anything of which she might stand in need and the best of everything in the valley came unbidden to her board of her abundance she gave to the needy and while she seldom spoke to any one her looks and acts were kind to all the priesthood recognized her power and the king and chiefs consulted her in matters of moment when the kilos of the temple were in doubt she had reared kualu with the greatest care and saw him grow to a manhood of which she was proud she loved him as if he had been her own child and he repaid her affection by heeding her advice in all things and by kindness comforting her declining years she had schooled him in a law which but few possessed and the most skilful had instructed him in the martial and courtly accomplishments consistent with his chiefly rank at the age of twenty he became attached to the household of the king and in time was advanced as already stated to the high grade of captain of the palace guard although his abilities had commended him to advancement his early favour with the king was doubtless due to some extent to the influence of his foster-mother kualu's intimate connection with the royal household brought him into frequent companionship with kuaiwa and his sister and as the latter grew to womanhood a romantic attachment sprang up between her and the handsome captain of the guard it was romantic only because it was to every appearance hopeless for there was a wide gulf between kualu and the daughter of the proudest moi in all the group and for whom there seemed to be no fitting mate the home of kualu was within the palace enclosure yet he frequently visited waahia in her lonely retreat to cheer her with words of affection and see that she wanted for nothing it was during one of these visits not long before the beginning of the leading events of this legend that the kaula abruptly said to him kualu i can see that you are thinking much of kapapa we sometimes meet replied kualu evasively it is not well for you to try to gather berries from the clouds returned the kaula kindly a niapio of the highest rank alone can reach that fruit the flying spears bring down what the hand cannot reach was kualu's significant answer waahia smiled at the dauntless spirit of her ward and after a long pause during which she sat thoughtfully with her eyes fixed upon the ground said your hopes are bold but the gods are great come to me to-morrow the next day kualu was made joyful by the words of waahia she told him that she had been given a view of something of his future and that the auguries promised so much 
that she could not discourage even the most audacious of his aspirations but that coming events affecting his life were so mingled with wars and strange faces of a race she had never seen except in dreams that she could then advise no definite course of action with these vague words of encouragement kualu returned to the palace and authoritatively learned what had for some time been rumoured that preparations were to be speedily made for an invasion of maui and possibly of the other islands of the group having brought all the districts of hawaii under his control kalaunui entertained the ambitious design of uniting the several islands of the archipelago under one government in this grand scheme of conquest and consolidation he was sustained by the leading chiefs of hawaii hungering for foreign possessions and large quotas of canoes and warriors were promised a general plan of action having been adopted a fleet of two thousand canoes of all sizes and an army of twelve thousand warriors were speedily collected sacrifices were made at the great temple of paka alani the favour of the gods was invoked and the auguries were satisfactory the king was to lead the expedition in person and the chivalry of the kingdom rallied to his support his double canoe nearly forty paces in length was gorgeous in royal colours and trappings and more than a hundred others bore at their mastheads the ensigns of distinguished chiefs no such warlike display had been seen by the generation witnessing it and the confidence and enthusiasm of the king and his commanding officers were fully shared by the people leaving the government in the hands of his young son kuaiwa with kahika the queen mother as principal adviser kalaunui ordered the warriors to their canoes and with his aids and personal attendants repaired to the beach to superintend the departure of the expedition in person in charge of his high priest his newly decorated war-god had been taken aboard and the king was about to follow when waahia whose foster-son was one of the leaders in the enterprise approached the royal kaulua she was clad in a pau and short mantle and her long white hair fell below her shoulders her form was bent and she carried a staff for support at the sight of the venerable figure familiar to every one in waipio the king turned and said i am glad you are here encouragement comes from the temple what says waahia good in the beginning bad in the end was the blunt response of the prophetess i am instructed by your cheering assurances adroitly returned the king observing that her words had been overheard the true meaning is that it would be bad to abruptly end a good beginning saying which with something of a scowl he hastily stepped into his kaulua and gave the signal for departure without replying waahia fully believing that disaster would overtake the expedition in the end and anxious to be near kualu when it came entered one of the many canoes set apart for the women and other camp followers of the invading army and with the fleet set sail for maui part two while the hawaiian army cheered by chance of battle and beating of war-drums is buffeting the waves on its way to maui let us glance again at the moi of that island and the political condition of his possessions while kamalu ohua was the nominal sovereign of the island the extreme eastern portion of it continued to be governed by independent chiefs the principal chief of the windward sides was wakalana whose residence was at wailuku 
he was a cousin of the moy and their relations were exceedingly friendly two years before a remarkable event had occurred at wailuku it was the second appearance in the group of a vessel bearing people of a strange race described by tradition as white with bright shining eyes mention is made of other white people who were brought to the islands on one or more occasions by the argonauts of early generations notably by paumakua of oahu who near the close of the eleventh century returned from one of his exploring voyages with three white persons of unknown race but this was the second time that a vessel of a people other than polynesian had been seen in hawaiian waters the first made a landing near makupu point on the island of oahu more than a hundred years before tradition has preserved the name of the vessel ulupana and of the captain mololanu and his wife malea but as it is not mentioned that they remained in the country it is probable that they soon re-embarked the second arrival is more distinctly marked by tradition it was a japanese vessel that had been dismantled by a typhoon driven toward the north american coast until it encountered the northwest trade winds and then helplessly blown southward to the coast of maui it was late in the afternoon that word had been brought to wakalana that a strange vessel was approaching the coast as it was high out of water and drifting broadside before the wind it appeared to be of great size and little disposition was shown by the people to go out in their canoes to meet the mysterious monster wakalana hastened to the beach and after watching the vessel intently for some time saw that it was drifting slowly towards the rocky coast to the westward seaman enough to know that certain destruction awaited in that direction wakalana hastily manned a stout canoe and started out to sea in pursuit the waters were rough and his progress was slow but he succeeded in reaching the vessel a few minutes after it struck the cliffs and was dashed in pieces seizing whatever they could find to assist them in floating those on board leaped into the sea it was hazardous to approach the wreck too nearly but wakalana succeeded in rescuing from the waves and returning to wailuku with five persons but not before he saw the last fragment of the wreck disappeared in the abyss of raging waters there is nothing in the names preserved either of the vessel or its rescued passengers to indicate their nationality the name of the vessel is given as mamala which in the hawaiian might mean a wreck or fragment the name of the captain was kaluikia manu the four others were called neleiki malaya haakoa and hika all names of hawaiian construction two of them neleiki and malaya were women the former being the sister of the captain they landed almost without clothing and the only novelties upon their persons were the rings and bracelets of the women and the sword in the belt of the captain with which he had thoughtlessly leaped into the sea from the sinking vessel they were half famished and weak and by gestures expressed their gratitude to wakalana for his gallantry in rescuing them and asked for food and water both were provided in abundance and two houses were set apart for their occupation they attracted great attention and people came from all parts of the island to see the white strangers it was noted with astonishment by the natives that these men and women ate from the same vessels and that nothing was especially taboo to either sex but wakalana explained that their gods doubtless permitted such freedom 
and they should therefore not be rebuked for their apparent disregard of Hawaiian custom. The comfort of the strangers was made the especial care of Wakalana, and they soon became not only reconciled but apparently content with their situation. But the kindness of the chief, however commendable, was not altogether unselfish. He was charmed with the bright eyes and fair face of Neleiki, the sister of the captain. He found a pleasure that was new to him in teaching her to speak his language, and almost the first use she made of Oya was to say, Yes, with it, when he asked her to become his wife. Her marriage was followed by that of Malaya to a native chief, and of her brother and his two male companions to native women of good family and here as well as anywhere it may be mentioned that through her son aluia neliaike became the progenitor of a family which for generations showed the marks of her blood and that the descendants of the others were plentiful thereafter not only on maui but in the neighbourhood of waimalo on the island of oahu the object of the rescued japanese which attracted most attention was the sword accidentally preserved by the captain no such terrible knife had ever before been seen or dreamed of by the natives. They had pahoas, or daggers of wood or ivory, and knives of sharply broken flint and shark's teeth. They had stone adzes, axes, hatchets and hammers, with which they could fell trees, hollow canoes from tree trunks, build houses, manufacture implements of war and industry, and hew stone of softer composition they had spears and javelins with points of seasoned wood hard enough to splinter a bone but iron and other metals had for ages been practically unknown to their race and the long sharp sword of the captain harder than bone or seasoned wood and from its polished surface throwing defiantly back the brilliant rays of the sun engaged their ceaseless wonder and admiration as an ornament they regarded it with longing and when they learned that it was a weapon of war they felt that the arm that wielded it in battle must be unconquerable the captain did not see fit to disabuse the minds of the superstitious natives in their disposition to attribute a power of almost unlimited slaughter to the simplest weapon on the contrary he rarely exhibited it except to distinguished chiefs and in a few months it began to be mentioned as a sacred gift of the gods and pledge of victory to him who possessed it nor was the knowledge of the existence of a talisman so wonderful long confined to the windward side of maui the fame of the terrible weapon spread from hana to kaanapali and thence to the other islands in the group and if but few of the many who came to learn the truth of the report were favoured with a view of the sword all saw at least the strange people who were pointed out as the bearers of it from an unknown land and the story of its powers was readily accepted but he who possessed it did not come as a conqueror and as he showed no disposition to use it offensively the weapon ceased to be regarded with alarm and now we will return to kala unui and his army of conquest last seen on their way to maui in a fleet of two thousand canoes sailing to the western division of the island which was reached in two days kala unui effected a landing of his army at lahaina kamalu ohua the moi of the island had learned of the projected invasion some days before and made every preparation possible to meet and repel it luna pais or war messengers had been dispatched 
to the several district chiefs and an army of seven or eight thousand warriors of all arms had been hastily collected wakalana had gone to the general defence with a force of eight hundred men including kaluiki the japanese captain upon whose presence great reliance was placed by the warriors of wailuku if not by wakalana himself unable to land at lahaina which was in possession of the enemy kamaluohua marched his forces across the mountains and a sanguinary battle was fought in the neighbourhood of the village but the maoians greatly outnumbered were defeated and driven back to the hills and their king was taken prisoner throughout the battle kualu was especially conspicuous for his might and courage armed with a huge stone axe everything human seemed to fall before him and where he led the bravest alone followed for he sought the very heart of danger the conflict was drawing to a close the moi gallantly fighting had been taken prisoner and his decimated battalions were steadily giving way when kualu encountered a body of two or three hundred men resolutely defending themselves behind a low stone wall several ineffectual attempts to dislodge them had been made and they were sending forth shouts of victory and defiance something had inspired them with unusual courage and confidence did kualu divine what it was perhaps he did for hastily rallying to his support a force of sturdy warriors he fought his way over the wall and a determined hand-to-hand -hand struggle followed meantime a flanking party of spearsmen had made a circuit around the wall and were menacing its defenders in the rear observing the peril of the situation and that an effort was being made to cut off their retreat to the hills the marians began to fall back as they did so kualu was seen to dash forward and precipitate himself almost unsupported upon a score or two of warriors who had apparently rallied to the assistance of some chief in distress regardless of danger he hewed his way through the battling throng until he stood face to face with kaluiki the white captain in whose hand was the shining blade which had so nerved the arms of the warriors of wailuku with a blow of his battle-axe he struck the sword from the upraised hand of the strange warrior as it fell to the earth he placed his foot upon it and yielded no ground until the tide of battle swept around and passed him forcing the retreat of the last to present a hostile front of the army of the captive king of maui left alone for a moment by the wild pursuit of the flying enemy kualu hurriedly stooped and thrust the sword into the earth pressing it downward until the hilt was covered then placing a large rock upon the spot he left the field numbering as he went his paces to the wall behind which the maurians had sought protection the victory was complete the moi was a prisoner and such of his army as had not escaped to the hills lay dead on the field the country was given over to pillage and at sunset twenty prisoners were slain and sacrificed in the haiau near the village the sacrifices were made to his war-god and kalaunui witnessed the solemn ceremonies of the offering the night was spent in the wildest revelry by the victorious warriors in the midst of which kualu sought his foster-mother who with the women and non-combatants of the invading army was encamped near the canoes on the beach he hastily recited to her the events of the day and concluded with the information that he had captured the long bright knife of the strange chief of wailuku 
and believing it to be of great value had hidden it in the earth at this intelligence the eyes of waahia flashed with satisfaction you have done well said the kaula rising to her feet i have seen that long knife in my dreams it will have much to do with your future but it will be unsafe in your possession give it to me give it to me at once she repeated for should kalaunui by any chance learn that it was taken in battle he will claim it but i am sure no one saw me hide it replied kualu you talk like a boy returned waahia you must be sure of nothing of which there is a possibility of doubt but no matter it is not too dark to find the spot to-night let us go to it at once excited by her words kualu now became no less anxious than the kaula that the sword should be placed in her keeping and in an indirect way to avoid observation they repaired to the battlefield their only light was that of the stars and after reaching the wall it was some time before kualu was able to identify the exact place to which he had extended the line of his hasty measurement the ground was strewn with the naked bodies of the slain and occasional groans came from a few whose struggles with death were not quite over but no emotion either of dread or pity disturbed the visitors satisfied at length that he had found the desired place in the wall kualu took a careful bearing and then stepped briskly toward the north closely followed by waahia measuring a hundred paces or more he suddenly stopped and with alarm discovered what seemed to be the form of a man crouching beside the rock marking the spot where the sword had been buried grasping his pahoa the only weapon he had brought with him kualu sprang forward and placed his hand upon the object it was cold and motionless and the young warrior smiled as the thought came to him that some one of the many who had fallen under his axe that day had possibly crawled to the spot to guard his treasure in death he lifted the body aside removed the stone and the next moment pulled from the earth and handed to waahia the iron blade she grasped it eagerly and with a hasty glance at its bright blade glistening in the starlight wrapped it securely in a piece of kapa and placed it under her mantle without attracting especial notice they returned to the beach when importuned by kualu to tell him something definite of his future waahia revealed to him much that would happen but all had not yet been given to her and she admonished him to keep his lips closed and patiently await the development of the will of the gods i can see victories to come said the kaula but in the end defeat and disaster but if disaster is to come to us in the end suggested kualu why should it not mean defeat and death to me i can give no reason why it should not but the gods seldom explain their acts to mortals and i am content in seeing your star shining above the ruin of kalaunui so spoke the kaula and cheered by her words kualu sought his tent of mats and on a hard couch of kapa dreamed of a long bright knife and of battles in which he hewed down armies with it taking his royal captive with him the second day after the battle kalaunui set sail with his army for the island of molokai of which kahokuohua was the aliinui or governing chief no force adequate to cope with the invading army could be rallied but the chivalrous descendant of the ancient kings of hawaii was not a ruler to allow his subjects to be plundered without resistance 
and hastily gathering an army of four or five thousand warriors he gave the invaders battle at kala upapa but he was defeated and taken prisoner and after ravaging the country for miles around and destroying every captured canoe of which he could make no use kala unui sailed for the conquest of oahu with the two royal captives in his train waahia still accompanied the expedition but the iron knife was not with her the king had from some source learned that its glitter had been seen on the battlefield at lahaina and she had hidden it in a cleft on the black rocks of the pali encircling kala upapa as already stated oahu was at that time governed by a number of practically independent chiefs the most powerful of these and possibly recognized ali nui of the island was Lei, chief of the iwa and waianai districts to which division kala unui directed his fleet landing his forces at waianai a sanguinary battle was fought near that place resulting in the defeat of the oahuans and the capture of Leilei. elated with his successes and deeming himself invincible kala unui next prepared for a descent upon Kauai and the conquest of the entire group but his plans for so formidable an undertaking were faulty he took no steps to consolidate his conquests or maintain possession of the land subdued by his arms he left behind him no friend or stronghold on the conquered islands blindly trusting no doubt that in the persons of his royal prisoners he retained for the time being a sufficiently firm hold upon the lands and subjects before embarking for Kauai, elaborate sacrifices were offered and every device known to the priesthood was exhausted to secure a continuance of the favour of the gods the moi of that island was kukona the fourth in descent from the great laamai kahiki kala unui recognised that the defensive resources of Kauai were not to be despised but he as greatly underrated the military abilities of kukona as he overrated his own and therefore did not doubt the result waahia saw disaster approaching but knew that kala unui would not listen to her voice of warning and therefore remained silent when the kilos anxious to please the king shaped their inauspicious auguries into promises of victory her greatest solicitude was for kualu he had been entrusted with an important command and could find no honourable pretext for declining to accept the hazard of the final struggle on Kauai. waahia therefore did not advise him to remain for she had seen his star shining above the clouds of defeat she had sought frequent and earnest counsel of the mysterious intelligences of the earth and air she had seen the answers in the smoke of burning incense and within the circle of blood at midnight when the moon was dark had heard their whispers hence it was with confidence that she said to kualu on the evening before the departure of the fleet for Kauai, yes you must go i can be of no service to you where the air will be filled with spears and the canoes will be painted red with blood i will return to hawaii you will be defeated kukona is a brave and skilful warrior and the army of kala unui will be rent in pieces and thrown into the sea the slaughter will be great but circumstances will open a way and you will escape and should i escape where will i find you inquired kualu among the owls in the old hut in waipio replied the kaula 
and the long knife the long knife is where i alone can find it answered waahia leave the secret to me it will be of service to us yet early next morning the army of kalaunui set sail for Kauai, and with it as prisoners the moys of maui and molokai and the aliinui of oahu at the same time waahia embarked for hawaii taking with her the war god of the king traditions differ concerning the circumstances under which the god was delivered to the prophetess one asserts that she refused to hold her peace or leave the expedition without it another that the king annoyed by her ill-omened words and presence purchased her departure with it and a third that it was given to her in deference to her declaration that if taken to Kauai, it would not return except at the head of a conquering army that would make a tributary kingdom of hawaii certain it is however that waahia returned to hawaii from oahu with the war-god of the king it was the sacred akuapau or war-god of pau and was held in great reverence by the priesthood borne over the waters by unseen forces the canoe of waiihia was stranded on the beach at koholalele on the island of hawaii not far off was the old heiau of manini and thither the god was conveyed and placed in the custody of the high priest of the temple with the injunction that it was never to be removed from the inner court or sanctuary unless the kingdom was in peril six generations after it was taken from the heiau by the giant mau kaleoleo and carried at the head of the victorious army of umi as mentioned in the legend of umi the peasant prince of hawaii six generations after it was taken from the heiau by the giant mau kaleoleo and carried at the head of the victorious army of umi as mentioned in the legend of umi the peasant prince of hawaii five hundred canoes had been added to the fleet of kalaunui and the imposing squadron seemed to stretch half across the wide channel separating the two islands a landing was made at koloa and the entire army disembarked without opposition the district seemed to be deserted and not a hostile spear was visible and so continued the peaceful aspect until daylight the next morning when kukona supported by every prominent chief of Kauai, suddenly precipitated upon the invaders from the surrounding hills an army of ten thousand warriors nor this alone along the westward coast was seen approaching a fleet of nearly a thousand war canoes with the manifest design of capturing or destroying the canoes of the hawaiians and cutting off their retreat by sea hastily forming his lines to meet the avalanche from the hills kalaunui dispatched kualu to the beach with a force of three thousand warriors to protect the canoes the attacks by land and sea were almost simultaneous and the battle was one of the most stubborn and sanguinary ever fought in the group as predicted by waahia the air was filled with spears and the canoes were painted red with blood standing in the water to their hips kualu and his warriors met their enemies as they attempted to land and a struggle of the wildest description followed canoes were upset men were hauled into them and killed and out of them and drowned and for a distance of three or four hundred yards in the surf along the beach raged a desperate conflict dreadful even to savage eyes in their fury they fought in above and under the water and hundreds fiercely grappled and without a wound sank to their deaths together neither would yield 
and in the end resistance ceased, and Kualu saw the beach strewn with dead, a thousand tenantless canoes idly playing with the surf, and less than as many hundreds of warriors left, as he had led thousands into the fight. He had saved the fleet, but the sacrifice of life had been terrible. Dispatching a messenger to the king and speedily reorganizing the remnant of his force, Kualu was about to leave the beach for service where he might most be needed, when he discovered with horror that the Hawaiian army had been defeated, and in scattered fragments was seeking flight in all directions. Harassed by pursuit, a thousand or more were fighting and struggling to reach the beach. Satisfied that the battle was lost, to facilitate the escape of the fugitives, Kualu ordered a large number of canoes to be hastily equipped and launched, and then started back to assist in covering the retreat. But his men refused to follow him. Knowing the danger of delay, all but a few of them leaped into canoes and paddled out to sea. As he could do nothing more, he selected a canoe suitable to the four persons who were to occupy it, and with his three remaining companions passed through the surf and headed for Oahu. Kualu did not escape a moment too soon. He had scarcely stemmed the surf before the fugitives, abandoning all defence, made a precipitate dash for the canoes, closely followed by their pursuers. In their haste they shoved out in canoes, some of which were overburdened and others but half-manned. A number of the former foundered in the surf, and such of the latter as succeeded in passing the breakers were overtaken by the canoes sent in pursuit nor did but few escape of the two or three hundred who preceded kualu in his flight some of them embarked in double canoes which they were unable to manage and others were either without sails or short of paddles the result was that less than a hundred of the fugitives escaped capture and of that number probably not more than twenty or thirty succeeded in reaching the other islands of the group for the sea was rough and but few of them were skilled in navigation among these were Kualu and his companions. Almost from the beginning, the sudden attack of Kukona from the hills had been a slaughter. The withdrawal of three thousand spears from the protection of his canoes had weakened the lines of Kalaunui at an exposed point, and breaking through them, the Kuaians so vigorously followed up the advantage that no effort could save the Hawaiians from defeat. They fought bravely and with desperation, but the breaking of their lines had left them without any definite plan of action, and defeat was inevitable. Kalaunui's courage was conspicuous, but after an hour's hopeless struggle he saw his brave battalions melting to the earth and giving way at all points. Recognising that the battle was lost, and that what was left of his army would soon be in wild retreat, he attempted to cut his way through to the beach, but was intercepted and taken prisoner. Learning his rank, he was taken by his captors to Kokona, and a few minutes later, the royal chiefs of Maui, Molokai, and Oahu, with their arms corded behind their backs, appeared on the scene. Deserted by their guards, they had been found in a hut not far from the beach and brought to the victorious Moi. It was a historic group, that meeting on the battlefield of Koloa, of the five principal sovereigns of the archipelago, had Kukona been ambitious, the means were at his command to become the supreme head of the island group, but he thought only of the future peace of Kauai, and promptly dismissed from his mind all dreams of broader fields of empire, well knowing that, were he able to seize the mastery of the group, he could not hope to long maintain it. 
not a word of jeering or of triumph passed between Kalaunui and the captive chiefs as they stood before Kukona, for the Aha Alii of the period, the chiefs of the accepted rank, commanded the respect not only of the untitled, but of each other, even in bondage and in death. Kukona had met the Ali Nui of Oahu in his own dominion some years before, and recognized him at once, but the kings of Maui and Molokai were strangers to him. Being informed of their rank and the circumstances of their captivity, he ordered them to be liberated at once, and with his own hands removed the cords from the arms of his royal friend from Oahu. The rescued princes were at once returned with befitting escorts to their own possessions, but Kalaunui was retained as a prisoner of war. But few of the invading army escaped. The victory was celebrated with elaborate sacrifices and general rejoicing throughout the island. The captured arms and canoes were divided among the assisting chief, and peace reigned again on Kauai. Kukona had secured the lasting friendship of the chiefs of, of Oahu, Maui, and Molokai, and therefore did not fear the retaliation of Hawaii. But, as a guarantee of peace, he kept Kalaunui a prisoner, rightly surmising that, if the ruling powers of Hawaii really valued the life of the captive king, they would not imperil it by attempting his release by force, and if they did not greatly value it, he would be left to his fate or the chances of peaceful negotiation. End of chapter 10